Hey, Emily. Um, Emily? Emily. Oh, that's right. She's on vacation. It's just me, Greg. <laughs> it's ESPN and Ice, the podcast you know and love. We've got a fun episode today, man. We are still talking about the issues of the day, including the NHL's return to play protocols as the uh, teams get back to their training facilities, um, but mostly about uh, all the social issues that are facing the league at this moment. Uh, but we also have three amazing guests to talk about those th- uh, things and the NHL awards. The ballots are out. It's the NHL awards bonanza on the podcast today. Dmitry Filipovich, Allison Lukin, and Murat Atas, who's a uh, first timer on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking with him. Uh, talking about a lot of cool stuff. So do check it out on this edition of ESPN and Ice. So let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I am Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I will keep this short because I know you don't want to hear me talking to myself. But there's a few things we have to touch on at the top of the show. First off, return to play phase two. Since we last joined you, the NHL has moved into phase two of its return to play protocol with some teams opening up their training facilities, other teams saying there is no demand from our players to do so, so we are not going to open them up. Some players returning to rejoin teammates on the ice for the first time in months to get medical testing, to use training equipment that's better than their Peloton they have at home. Other players staying where they are. Um, you know, we have 17% of the league overseas right now. We have players that are in Toronto at their summer homes and things like that. And in some cases, they've had more access to ice and, and better training equipment than they could get back in their home cities with their teams. And also, let's not forget about this, as one player told me recently, uh, if you're home and you're working out on the ice and you're working out in your home gym, you also aren't getting tested for COVID-19 twice a week, which as much as we want to think that that is a valorous and virtuous thing to do in this day and age may not necessarily be a thing a player wants to do until they absolutely have to. When will they have to? That's the interesting question. John Tavares of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who's on the NHL's return to play committee, talked about this this week in the sense that he expects a group of six to maybe become a group of 12 and then maybe a group of 20 and an incremental increase of the number of players that will be allowed on the ice together and to train together as we ramp up towards what we assume is going to be the reopening of training camps in early July. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, the NHL's uh, return to play protocol, obviously very conservative off the hop, trying to keep the numbers down, trying to keep the numbers limited. And then as we get going towards training camp, maybe expanding it, and that would be a signal that we're getting close to something. Now, getting to something's a different story because that it requires the diciest of propositions if you're a National Hockey League fan, which is the <laughs> the friendly cooperative spirit of the NHL and the NHLPA. And it's an ongoing story right now on the PA front, the idea of what will be accomplished from a collective bargaining standpoint ahead of a return to play being uh, rubber stamped by the players. A lot of issues at play, you know, the amount of money the players are going to owe the, owe the owners in escrow for the next two seasons because of the revenue drop. How would they address that? The players would, in theory, like it to be over the course of several seasons. The Olympics are on the table. A lot of stuff's on the table, including how to calculate the next TV contract 
into whatever CBA they decide on. So there's a lot at play, a lot behind the scenes, and a lot of it inexplicably tied to a return to play. I say inexplicably because in the eyes of a lot of people, I think they look at this and say, well, coming back and finishing the season shouldn't be necessarily related to the next CBA. But, I mean, come on. It's all tied together. It's all labor talks at this point. And a lot of that stuff needs to be ironed out behind the scenes before the players will sign off on anything. And then, of course, it becomes a situation of, will they sign off? You got guys with families, guys with kids, guys that are in a different headspace when it comes to returning to play within the context of a global pandemic versus players that are younger, single, and maybe don't have the same concerns. So getting all those guys on the same page will be a task for Don Fear and the NHLPA. At the same time we're talking about this, we are, of course, also talking about the killing of George Floyd, the protests that followed, and the reaction of the National Hockey League to all of it. Over 110 players have made statements of some kind um, about the protests, about police brutality, about racial inequity, about racial injustice. Uh, and there's been some developments in sort of an administrative way since we last spoke to you. The NHL uh, told us that they are going to create four different working groups, one on an executive level, which is going to be kind of the overseeing force of the other groups insofar as the other groups coming up with recommendations in this executive council of team presidents and owners uh, and general managers trying to create action around them. You're going to have a council of players. You're going to have a council or a committee of fans, which – to me, in hearing the details in this one doesn't sit completely well with me. I mean, it seems like it's going to be more of a marketing council than it is a chance for fans of different backgrounds coming together to explain to the NHL what would what it could do to make them feel more welcome. But maybe there's some wiggle room on that. And then finally, uh, a committee that is going to focus on youth hockey and the racial uh, and diversity inequities there. So the NHL We'll announce the personnel for these committees over the course of the next several weeks. We'll know about the executive one first, and then hopefully they put the work in. This is stuff that's been kind of in the works since last December with the Bill Peters situation, and now we're seeing it come to fruition. At the same time, a separate entity founded by Evander Kane and Akeem Alou uh, called the Hockey Diversity Alliance has sprung up. Their executive committee includes Matt Dumba, Trevor Daly, Wayne Simmons, uh, Chris Stewart, and uh, recent Pox, uh, Pox, <laughs> recent ESPN and Ice. Get my podcast confused. Recent ESPN and Ice uh, guest Joel Ward. This is a, a, a independent organization that is going to look at diversity issues in hockey. Uh, and it is going to have a charitable arm. It's going to include more and more names, including some female ones that were left off the initial list. Uh, and it is going to be a, a committee that tries to create action on its own, but also influence action within the National Hockey League. It's an, a very interesting development. Um, the NHL obviously is trying to develop its own player committee. And then at the same time, you have all of these players kind of creating their own thing on their own. Um, and from what I hear, Unbeknownst to the NHL, uh, they were kind of surprised by the announcement on Monday about this organization, from what I hear. So that'll be interesting to see how these two organizations work together. And But the good news is that there are now actions being taken by individuals and by entities to try to create ways to affect change. We can all debate on what the good and bad ways to affect change are. Which brings me to one last thing before we get to our guest, which is the Tyler Sagan video. It is a topic of conversation amongst hockey fans this week 
The NHL on Tuesday released a video featuring Tyler Sagan protesting at an organized protest in Dallas about police brutality. Um, he is one of a handful of players that have appeared at these protests, Zane Char being one of them as well. Uh, commendable. You want the biggest stars in the NHL to not just simply put out statements on their social media feeds, but, you know, pick up a, you know, a friend and head to a protest and, and get involved and be present. Take action. Don't just be words. It's what we're looking for from all these guys. So from the, for the NHL's perspective, to highlight a star of that magnitude, marching with protesters, um, I think is a commendable thing. I think their intentions in creating this video were good. Where it completely went off the rails was the parts of the video in which they used comments from Sagan's social media feeds as validation of his actions. Things, and I'm paraphrasing here, things like, I'm a, I'm a black hockey fan and you've made me a bigger hockey fan because you went to this protest, yada, yada, yada. I mean, like, like, look, I understand what they're trying to do here. But when the you look at that video, and you can't look at it anymore because they deleted it because of the backlash. When you look at that video and you see the point in which it becomes highlighting an NHL player marching against racial injustice, and then it veers off into a marketing campaign, a commercial for the league, there's a sense of that that was inescapable when watching this thing. And I think that's the lesson. The lesson should not be, let's not create this video. Because I understand that the NHL created this video using some of these diversity committee, you know, type personnel and angles to put it out there. It wasn't simply just created by like a social media intern. Um, the mistake is trying to frame it as, here's a thing that'll make us look good. Cause that is a line that cannot be crossed. Difficult conversations need to be had. Difficult stances should be made and a celebration of those conversations and those stances is completely necessary and completely laudable. But then taking them and trying to turn it into like selling it, like here's a thing that we did that's good and let's pat ourselves on the back that one of our players did this and here's why you diverse hockey fans should come and view our sport. That is gross. And I think that's where the video kind of took a turn. Best intentions, pretty bad execution. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about this stuff and then also about the NHL Awards with our three guests, starting with our good friend Dmitry Filipovich. All right. Joining me now on the line is Dmitry Filipovich of ESPN and the PDO cast. Well worth your, worth your time. Um I guess we should start with something off the ice. Uh, your reaction to the last dozen days in hockey as the sport confronts these protests over police brutality and its own racial inequities. I know that you've certainly been monitoring this stuff online. What's your, what's your take on what's happened in hockey? I mean, listen, it's important that people are speaking up and using their platforms. I've certainly tried to do so myself and amplify various voices and, and sort of do our part to help create change. I think, some part of the pushback to, to what the NHL has been doing is it's kind of very uh, transparent and performative, and especially the uh, the most recent instance of the uh, Tyler Sagan debacle certainly didn't do them any any help. So I don't know. I, I think um, they're trying they're trying certainly to do stuff, but uh, it's falling a little short in my opinion. 
Yeah, it's. I think trying's the word, right? Like it's kind of watching a a newborn fawn trying to find its legs. You know, it it wants to walk. It doesn't quite know how to yet. Um, but the effort's there in some of these cases, and uh, you know, it, it, I think that the important thing, like you said, though, uh, is amplifying. And uh, I know for on my part, you know, I've probably done more trying trying to signal boost folks that uh, don't necessarily have the platform that I have uh, than writing on this stuff myself. And I think the NHL, to its credit, has tried to do that in some cases. I mean, if you, they have like over, I think, like six million followers on Twitter. And for the most part, their social feed has been turned over to creating graphics, quoting players, um, and especially minority players, and trying to get their voices amplified as much as they can, which is not necessarily something you'd expect from the official social media feed of the National Hockey League. Absolutely. And I think you're seeing a lot of people have uncomfortable conversations that they certainly weren't having in the past, at least publicly. And, and that's a that's a great first step. So um, I, I know they can certainly do a lot more. But just in terms of that, it's at least nice to see them addressing it. And, and obviously, you know, I mean, racism in hockey is, is very deeply entrenched, just like it is in society. But I mean, it extends to, to, to so many different factors and so many different levels, including whether it's you know, European players or anyone that's basically outside of North America. And that's something that, that hockey has been, and the NHL, I should say, has been very um, reluctant to kind of publicly acknowledge, at least, even though it's been something that's been percolating for a long time now. Good good move on you differentiating between NHL and hockey. I think it's an important lesson going forward for all yeah. of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into these, some of the awards. This is, of course, the NHL Awards Bonanza episode of ESPN on Ice. Uh, how are you untangling the Hart Trophy debate this year? I feel like it's been years since we actually watched hockey, so I had to do a lot of uh, a lot of research just to kind of jog my memory in terms of what actually happened the last time we were watching these guys play. Um, and I, I know you and I differ on this a little bit, at least that we have in the past. But for me, I don't really take uh, team performance into heavy consideration here, and missing the playoffs doesn't preclude you from from winning an award in my opinion i understand that the logic that you know if you were going to miss if you're missing the playoffs anyways even with a great season what did you really ultimately accomplish but mm-hmm. i just think listen we can't have it both ways we, we prop up hockey as this ultimate team sport where no individual is greater than the whole yet um at the same time we want to punish individuals for being on a bad team here even though it isn't an individual award so i'd rather focus on what the uh, the players in question could control um, and so with that in mind, and especially this year, I think it throws a huge monkey wrench into it just because it's like 24 teams are basically making the playoffs at this point by the time we have to, by the time we have to vote. So it's really tough to untangle that. But I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very fascinating discussion. And I sent my, um, sort of logic to you last week when you were writing about this on the site, but I think the Artemi Panarin case is incredibly interesting just based on the effect he had in year one in New York on his team uh, when he was on the ice versus when he was off of it. I agree with you on Panarin. Um, very compelling case. What would be your case for not Dreisaitl in this situation, being that he won the Art Ross? Well, I don't think it's as much as not Dreisaitl as much as it is just what Panarin did. I think with the Dreisaitl thing, well, some context is important because I think you see the 43 goals and 110 points in 71 games and it's it's certainly impressive, and the counter to all of that is, and we're going to get into this when we talk about the Norris and John Carlson, but it's wild. It's great that he's creating on one end of the ice. Whenever he's on the ice, the Oilers are bleeding all that offense right back, and it's basically sort of 
neutralizing all of the advances they made or evening it out. Mm. Now, what I'll say to that is I think context is important because with Joyce Seidel, it's clear that part of it has to do, I'm sure, with what they're asking him to do when he's out there, both in terms of the ice time burden him and David have because of the lack of depth on the team and also because if they're not creating offense, that team probably isn't going to create any offense. So I think they're asking them to maybe cheat a little bit offensively and fly the zone a bit sooner whenever they see an opening there so they can create those patented two-on-ones that they're known for. And, and so sometimes that leads uh, to chances coming back the other way and backfiring. So all of that needs to be taken into account. I think saying that he's the second most valuable player is certainly not a knock to him, although I know that no. Oilers fans will probably take offense to that, especially after everything that's gone on with McDavid the past couple of years and how it feels like we are kind of moving the goalposts now in terms of uh, playoff eligibility factor in their candidacy. You mentioned the Norris. Uh, this is going to be a real tough one, man. You you, mm-hmm. you already have some canaries in the coal mine that, uh, you know, the, the Athletic, I think it was, and I think NHL.com have sort of cast their lots. Uh, NHL.com for Carlson. I think Yossi was the overwhelming winner in the athletic straw poll where do you fall on this one because you have to say that in, in talking about Kucherov last season Carlson's offensive year this year is one of the best we've seen in the last like 30 years and and, and mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time unpacking that fact from the idea that maybe he isn't the best all-around defenseman this season yeah I mean it's certainly fair like the 75 points jump off the page and and uh what he's done creating offensively and I don't think he's as much of a a passenger on that power play as people would make you believe because I think some of the stuff he does with his vision and quarterbacking opens up a lot of those lanes and opportunities for Ovechkin and Kuznetsov and Baxter and so on and so forth. But uh, it's, it's similar to what I said. Like it's when you look at the actual effects in terms of all of the models and the on ice impact he has, he gives back a lot of what he creates offensively, defensively. Whereas with Yossi, I don't think the gap between them uh, where he has 65 points and he actually has even more goals scored than, than Carlson by one is is big enough to justify overlooking what Yossi does in the neutral zone, how um, he impacts everything when he's on the ice at five on five. And, and so what he did, especially with Ellis missing those 20 games after his concussion in the, in the winter classic and sort of how he carried yeah. that team um, was really impressive to me. And the volume for him, too. I mean, he's first amongst defensemen in shots by a mile. Uh, he was playing nearly 26 minutes a night. So he has a lot of those similar attributes or, or checkpoints that, that Carlson hit with uh, fewer sort of defensive drawbacks. And for me, I think that kind of puts him slightly over the top. But I understand uh, that, that people will feel like, you know, we often just look at points for this stuff, and now it feels like we're, we're trying to make these other arguments against Carlson. It's tough, man, because like I feel like a certain obligation to vote for Carlson because of what happened to Mike Green, <laughs> trying to right. write that wrong. But then again, I think the difference is that Green at the time also had an analytic argument in the sense that the possession numbers when he was on the ice were very strong. And I don't think Carlson has the same sort of underlying argument if you if you kind of you know open up the hood a little bit on him that uh, that Green had on his outstanding offensive season. So I, I, the wind's blowing towards Yossi, and I don't necessarily think it's an ill wind. Um, the Calder's one that I get asked about every single day when I do radio hits because people are fascinated by it, especially in Vancouver. Um, you, you team team Quinn or team Kale on this one? Uh. Depends on the day you ask me. I guess uh, <laughs> right now I'm slightly leaning to, to Hughes just purely because I felt like he did not more, but he did roughly the same as Makar with slightly less to work with. But I think, you know, if you look at the way Makar was used and the fact that 
he's got this 63% offensive zone star rate, heavily sheltered. Mike Hughes does himself, but McCarr's playing more than half of his minutes at five on five with Nathan McKinnon out there as kind of a, mm-hmm. a safety mm-hmm. blanket for him. And, and so he was in a great spot for him to for him to thrive. And he certainly made the most of it and amplified that offense. I mean, he was one of the best offensive generators and that we had at this season. But I just think what, what Hughes meant for the Canucks in terms of the five on five impact he had with pretty much everyone he played with and the fact that they were asking him to do more heavy lifting uh, gives him the slight nod in my favor. But I will say, I think the more interesting argument actually is how we round out this ballot. Oh, yeah. We're going to get in that third spot. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think it has to be Adam Fox. Yeah, I, it's going to be really f- interesting to see if there's going to be a situation where the third guy isn't a forward. I, I'd have to look back. I don't even know if that's ever happened in the Calder voting where there hasn't been a forward in the top three. Because you could make the argument that it could be Fox. You could make the argument that it, it could be Mackenzie Blackwood for yep. getting shellacked behind a, a porous Devils team and making them respectable. Uh, I thought he had a really strong rookie season as a guy who didn't really believe in him at the start when, when Hines was doing whatever the hell Hines was doing. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but, but no, Fox has been great. And I think what's amazing about it is if you wanted to kind of game game plan this out, you could make the argument that the top four rookies this season were all, uh, were all defensemen. If you wanted to put Marino in play, because Marino Mm -hmm. was incredible. Doesn't have the, the, the workload the others to have because of the injury, but he was incredible this season for Pittsburgh. Yeah, Marino, Marino, I want to put Marino in there for. And if he hadn't missed that time, I think there'd be a strong case for him even in the top three. I mean, he was the only one of these guys that actually killed penalties this season mm-hmm. and played a sort of defensive shutdown role, which has value, especially for, for a young player, which is impressive to me. I mean, the fact that he played nearly 200 minutes with Jack Johnson, I feel like warrants some sort of an award just purely <laughs> on uh, on the surface by itself. A medal of valor, if you will. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, closing out the, uh, the player awards here with the Selkie. I mean, I, listen, I think we all assume that Connor Hallibuck's going to win the Vesna, so there's no even yep. conversation to be had there. Uh, but the Selkie trophy is always interesting to unpack. Uh, if only because it seems like it's an award and the Norris sort of falls into this category as well, where there's always a guy that seems like it's his turn, right? It's like, it's your turn to now win the Selkie. It's your turn to now win the Norris. And in that case, uh, Sean Couturier seems to be that guy with the Selkie trophy. The question is, should it be his year? I have him a second on my on my uh, fake ballot, and I think Anthony Sorelli, uh, especially once he turned it on when the Lightning went on that run in the second half of the year and sort of mm-hmm. the, the impact he had where his numbers across the board, uh, despite sort of, defensively heavily uh, slanted minutes is incredible. He's playing nearly three minutes a game on the penalty kill, 46% off of his own start rate. And they still outscored teams 48 to 20, uh, 23 with him on the ice at five on five. And so wow. for me, what Sorelli did was, was just incredibly impressive. And he sort of, you know, we think of point and Kucherov and Stamkos, but his ability to free up Stamkos to, to play on the wing with him and, and sort of focus on his scoring more at this point of his career is a huge driving force for that team's success. And so I think Sorelli has a slight nod there, but but you really you really can't go wrong either way. And similar to the Calder, the interesting thing for me because those guys are pretty clearly one two in my opinion is how you round this out. Whether you go with that hipster pick of Valerie Nichushkin or whether you <laughs> give it to Ryan O'Reilly, I think Philip Dano has an interesting case for it. Like it's it's fascinating and, I, and it's amazing to see that how many people are just going to sort of blindly put Patrice Bergeron and, and Jonathan Taves. And, and, and Andre Kopitar and some of these guys that have been annually at the top of this list in in the consideration for the Southie, despite the fact that their play this season didn't exactly warrant it. 
Well, that's the question I had about Bergeron. I mean, I think Bergeron's numbers are pretty good, but they're not Bergeron mm-hmm. numbers. Uh, they're not Bergeron numbers, which, which you know makes me. You know, you think about the the times when Nick Lidstrom would run the Norris for multiple seasons, and then he'd have a season that was incredible by any measure, except for the measure that it wasn't a Nick Lidstrom season. Is that kind of where Bergeron is this year, or is are Bergeron's numbers just in general a tick lower than Kateria and Sorelli? Yeah, he's he's a fascinating one because I think that certainly when he's on the ice, he still has that impact. I think with the Bruins, they're sort of playing the bigger picture with with him and Chara right now, where they're trying to manage his minutes more carefully to keep him fresh for a long playoff run. He missed some time with injury, but his career arc has been really fascinating because basically he's turned into this lock to be a thirty goal scorer well into his thirties now, which yeah. we you rarely ever see. Like his without sacrificing defensively, obviously, but his sort of ability to keep. Uh, improving and adding new layers to his game as he ages and, and defies father time is, is one of the most like undertold stories, in, in my opinion, in the NHL right now. For sure. 60 seconds left, my friend. Uh, your thoughts on return to play, if you had to put a percentage on it, how likely is it that we actually do see the NHL season play out this summer? I think it's likely. It's going to happen. I have my reservations and concerns about it, but with the money involved, uh, the NHL is going to, to make it happen one way or another. Well, shoot, man, I gave you 60 seconds. You took 15. Anyways, Dimitri, <laughs> you are, you're one of my favorites, man. Where can people find your stuff? Uh, just follow me on Twitter at, at uh, Dim Filipovich. I'm tweeting out all the links there of everything I do. And uh, go listen and subscribe to the, uh, the Hockey PDO cast, which isn't a rival of ESPN Ice. It's, it's more of a, a brother or sister program. So, uh, Dude, it is, so it is a gigantic that. tent. We welcome everybody under that tent that does a podcast. Um, we just want people to listen. It's it's really us against the world as hockey podcasts. So absolutely. You know, well, exactly. thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks, man. Allison Lucan of the Athletic uh, covers the Columbus Blue Jackets. Is a leading voice in the hockey analytics community. I know I'm trying to shine her up on that, but I think others would agree. Uh, Allison, thanks for joining us. First off, can you talk about some of the hockey analytics night in America stuff that you've been working on during this uh, quarantine period that's gotten many people excited? Well, thank you for that very generous uh, intro, Greg. It's always great to chat with you. Uh, yes, thank you for asking. Um, full credit goes to Megan Cheka, actually, of Stathletes. When the season hit pause, uh, which we all are intimately familiar with, um, she came to me and said, hey, what if we kept the conversation going and took advantage of this time to feed research, teach, share knowledge, investigate Sport. And so every Saturday, uh, we have put together programs that focus on analytical topics. Sometimes they're tutorials. Um, and as of late, uh, we have actually also branched into some of the other major sports. We're going to have NBA, MLB. We already did NFL. Just to, to kind of spur that thinking of what can we learn uh, from other sports. And you can get all of the information on those events at H-A-N-I-C hyphen analytics.com so we're, awesome. we're pretty proud of it it's it's uh it's been a lot of fun that's awesome you know it's funny i i always like to think about analytics place in hockey in relation to that in baseball because i think in some ways the analysis of baseball has become ha- has been traditionally too slavish <laughs> to analytics mm-hmm. in some cases mm-hmm. uh to the point where in in I, and i've heard from baseball fans say this not just myself but like to the point where their enjoyment of the game sometimes gets twisted by how slavish the sport has become to analytics. I don't think hockey's there. I don't think hockey will ever be there. Um, but where do you think 
the analytic approach in hockey, insofar as its acceptance, insofar as its use, what fans think about it, compares to it from other sports, including uh, football, which where it's certainly grown in the last few years? Yeah, I, I think in hockey, we've, we've at least passed that point of it just being major contention, right? If we think back <laughs> to like 2014 and the war on analytics and things like that, I, I think... I, I think that it's certainly not hated, um, and I think that uh, even uh, people who were curmudgeons uh, accept that data is a part of evaluating the game and understanding what's going on. I, I do get a kick out of uh, people who always say, I don't understand what you write or what you talk about, but I love your work. So, <laughs> um, but, but I think that I think that where we are is, um, and, and something I've really tried to help spearhead too, is making everything really accessible and understandable. Stop using really complex terms or, or names that are kind of off-putting because we don't know what they mean. Um, and what's, what's going to be interesting is I now hear from the layperson, if you will, great questions about the game. Can we look at this? Can we understand that? And to answer those questions, we just don't have the data yet. So mm-hmm. I think that it'll be really exciting to see if any of this tracking data gets publicly accessible um, because there's so much more we can understand. And I think answering these really great questions that the public and the average fan has would only drive that acceptance more. It's pretty crazy that you hear the same reaction to your work that I hear when I make an, er- an early 90s pop culture reference or a wrestling reference. So we're in the same boat, I guess, at the end of the day. Uh, what's been your reaction, switching gears, to the last uh, dozen days in hockey with the sport confronting protests on police brutality, its own re- racial inequities, and having multitudes of players uh, releasing statements on uh, on Black Lives Matter and, and racial injustice? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously uh, such an important time for uh, not just our country, but our continent and our world. And, you know, I know I've seen a lot of the back and forth. I think that it's important to acknowledge that um, while these statements are great, they just can't be performative, right? They just can't be throw up a social media post because everyone else is. Um, I'll be watching for action at the player level, at the team level, at the NHL level. Um, But what I do like about this kind of groundswell is that I think that this sets a new tone and maybe the average fan who didn't understand these issues or didn't maybe want to confront them or do the work to understand them, they're now feeling pressure from the sport and the players that they love to to see that this that racial inequality is something that shouldn't and can't be tolerated. So I think setting that kind of a tone in the culture is, is key. Um, and, you know, I like I like what is happening now with the new alliance uh, that a group of players have created. I like that they're going to be involving women's players as well. Um, outside of the NHL's um, video last night, I think we're, we're seeing slow baby steps uh, forward in the right direction. Uh, there's obviously a, obviously a Columbus aspect to this. Um, <clears throat> I think there's been a reconsideration of what JT Brown did in 2017, raising his fist during the national anthem in protest. Um and maybe the reaction then should have been stronger and more supportive than than it was. Uh, John Tortorella famously has spoken out against such protests. I know he told your colleague Aaron Portsline that he didn't really have any comment at this time about what's happening in the world. But would you like to see him address it? Do you think he will address it? Um, and, and what's that going to look like? <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, I mean, I think, and listen, I get it. I get the reputation. We've talked about this before, too. I get the reputation that Torts has. I get that he comes by it, honestly, um, particularly on this issue. I, I do think we'll be hearing from him, um, perhaps quite soon, in fact. 
Um, and I think that uh, he has um, opened himself to growth and understanding, as I think we can only ask of everybody. Um, I, you know, it's, it, I think it's hard for him because, as most people know, his son is a member of the military special forces. This is a situation where his son goes away for his job and they don't even know where he is, let alone if he's alive or dead. So I think um, the military is a, a cause and the sacrifice of that that has always been very, very close to Torts's heart. But I think that he's learning and understanding um, more. And, and like I said, most importantly, listening um, to the conversation to, to perhaps better share what's important to him and how he respects what's important to others also. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, a guy who's changed a bit. Look, I can't speak to his the work he's put in to understand these issues better, but I can definitely put understand and, and praise the work he's put in on himself. I mean, this dude's not the same dude that coached in New York. Like he clearly <laughs> identified parts of himself that needed fixing and has worked really hard to fix them. Um, that could be after what happened in Vancouver. I know that was a real transformative moment for him professionally. So I, as far as a guy who can grow and change, I think Tortorella shouldn't be written off um, as someone who can grow and change because I think he has in a lot of ways personally. Yeah, for sure. And, I, you know, it's this, this team he's coached in particular this year, this was a team that was averaging six to seven players out due to injury every game <laughs> through Oof. the 70 that they played. They were the youngest team in the league. Uh, he had to – and he admitted this to us in the media. He had to completely rethink – how he approached this group of guys. And, and uh, you know, he's even from an analytical perspective, he'll still offer up his jabs at, at quote unquote analytics. But if you look <laughs> at philosophies he's taking into his coaching, how he's leading his team, he's living a lot of analytical approaches. And, and you know, again, back to the most important issue, the social issue, it, of course he needs to be held accountable as do all of us for, for perhaps not listening or, or acting in the ways that we did in the past. It certainly doesn't absolve that. Um, but I, I do think he's, he's listening. Um, and, and that's again, all we can ask is growth. And, and that is what brings us closer to real change. Uh, you mentioned the blue jackets. We should probably touch on that before we get to some award stuff. Uh, they draw the Maple Leafs in the first round. And I think as you've <laughs> pointed out recently in some of your analysis, they're a team that's hard to get a read on because this is going to be the healthiest we've seen the Jackets in a very long time when we see them again this summer. Uh, where where do you stand on them as a as a playoff contender? How do you think that matchup against the Leafs uh, plays into their hands? Yeah, it's funny, and I say this with the caveat that I am by no means predicting an outcome. But <laughs> on paper, the mat the matchup does look a lot like uh, the first round last year when it was Blue yeah. Jackets versus Tampa Bay. Um, and both sides, I know, are sick of hearing this, but the Blue Jackets have ridden a very, very strong, suppressive, forecheck-driven defensive approach on the ice this year, um, whereas Toronto obviously relies on elite offensive talent. Um, the Blue Jackets have perhaps had stronger goaltending, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at a healthy Blue Jackets team, if they can click back into that system that was working for them so well, even through the injuries, because guys were just able to come in and plug into the system, I think it'll be a real test. Um, and the other thing that I'm really intrigued to see is that, you know, and this has been well documented, just all of the stuff that the Blue Jackets had to go through last year with the unrestricted free agents and that drama, and then all the injuries this year. 
I think mentally this group in Columbus might have a little bit of an edge there, both in terms of confidence of what they can do and also confidence to overcome and, and, and push through any challenges that way mentally. Um, but it's just five games. So goaltending yeah. is going to be huge here, and uh, whoever can get on their game first is probably going to have the advantage. And are we to assume it's Corpusalo's crease this summer? I mean, I, I think so for now, but with such a weird way that the teams are going to get back to action, I think that if Merzlikens comes in with the hotter hand, that, that they're going to have no problem giving him the net, particularly because it's such a short series. It's so interesting. All right, trophy time. What oh sticks boy. out? What sticks out for you? What's the award that you're looking at and you're like, this is the most fascinating one that we have to vote on? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, well, when I look at, at what I have uh, been kind of digging into, and, you know, we're all still kind of doing our uh, different degrees of doing our research, um, the Bing is interesting to me, but, of course, <laughs> the heart the heart debate. Um, you know, this, this whole idea of does the team have to make the playoffs? Um, I am on the Artemi Panarin bandwagon. Ah. Um, I, ha- I have been because I had the opportunity to watch him for two years in Columbus, and it's it's hard to explain to someone who maybe doesn't watch him as much as someone who's covered him does, but it is just amazing to me how much he's overlooked for how good he really is. Um, and when you look at what's around him in New York, you look at that defense and you look at where that team is and what he's accomplished individually, um, he's my nominee for that for sure. Yeah, I think there's a really strong case for it um, and, and the transformative effect that he has on lesser line mates. Uh, has I mean I I think there were times that that was the case in Columbus and it certainly has been the time uh, in New York for him. You mentioned the Bing. What fascinates you? About, you know my thing about the Lady Bing, in, in case people don't know, is that I don't think the hockey writer should vote on it. I think it should be an, an award that's voted on by the on ice officials, maybe the Ooh. NHLPA. I I don't I don't think that we look. I've been in the press box. We are the last people that should be judging people on gentlemanly behavior. Okay, that's that's a fact. <laughs> but I mean, it also speaks to the fact that, like, you know, we we are on the outside looking in. There are certain things that we can observe, certain things we can measure when it comes to these other rewards. But I mean, to me, the interaction between a player and an on ice official, the interaction interaction between a player and a player, like that's where the Bing lies as far as its its value, as far as its assessment, and that's stuff we're not really privy to. Uh, so that's yeah. my that's my li- my long winded soapbox on the Bing. But you mentioned it. What's your what's your thoughts on that? Well, here here's here's a here's a name I'll throw out for you, and that's uh, Elias Pettersson. Oh is, yeah, uh, is is one for me. And and so you know when you look at this, and, and sometimes I dread how much I overthink these things. But um, <laughs> y- y- you know he has the second best um, individual penalty differential in the league this year, second only to Jack Eichel. Um, and then I went and did some research, and th- this is a player who, to your point of what happens on the ice, he literally called a penalty on himself this year. Did he really? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so and, you know, and he apologizes when he hit a player in the face with a puck um, off a pass. So it's the very little window we can get into this, and it, it, it is a crazy award. Um, I like throwing in a name that maybe not everyone's talking about, and, and that's the one for me for sure. I love that. And, and in fact, I mean, I think you could make the case that a Swede should win the award every year. Uh, but I love, <laughs> so I love that call. Um, last one. Is there, is there any, uh, do you have any thoughts on, on the uh, Calder Trophy uh, brouhaha between Quinn Hughes, Cal McCarr, or somebody jumping off the top rope from the outside that we're not considering? 
Um, I I won't be upset if Makar or Hughes wins it, um, but I tend to lean a little bit more towards Makar right now. Um, you know, I was, again, doing way too much reading, and um, fellow players have talked about just how elite his skating is um, and how difficult he is to cover. And, you know, there's there's a little bit of debate. debate and, again, you can argue pro on, on either side of this where – Makar is able to do things a little bit more individually. He'll go for the more difficult play um, where Hughes is more of a playmaker. Um, so I'm going to give it to Makar, but if, if Hughes walks away, I, I would also be 100% in, in favor of that. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I feel like a lot of people are in that boat where no matter we'll, – we'll, we'll cast our lot. We'll see how it goes, and if it goes the other way, that's fine too. Right. For sure. So for sure. It's solid. It's solid. Cool. Very good. Um, awesome. So tell people where they can find your stuff. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, we, I've already mentioned the Hannock site. Um, I am on Twitter at Allison L A L I S O N L. Um, and then I'm also part of the too many man, too many men podcast. And that's at the T O O many men pod.com. Um, and all my work usually funnels through one of those two places. So that's where you can find me. It's great stuff, man. The Athletic uh, corners the market for a lot of teams. I think their uh, their Blue Jackets coverage is is uh, bar none, the, the tops you can find. So uh, if you're interested in Columbus, you check it out. Thank you so much for your time, Allison. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Greg. You take care. Take care. Murat Atas is of The Athletic and also the Boarding Pass podcast, which is one of my favorite hockey-centric named podcasts, I think. It's a great name for a podcast. I'm surprised the New York Jets didn't take it already. But... Uh, <laughs> but it's pretty solid. Um, and joining us for the first time on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Um, I guess the first question would be, as I've been asking all our guests today, uh, your reaction to the last dozen days in hockey as the sport confronts its own sort of racial inequities um, while also having hundred over 100 players comment on uh, police brutality, protests, and and the things that are going on in the world. Yeah, I think my lens for it, I mean, it begins with the Akeem Alou story at the Players' Tribune, uh, continues through a few other comments. But as you know, in Winnipeg, Blake Wheeler has been one of the more outspoken athletes in terms of, hey, uh, you know, racism is real. It's something that's affecting people outside of the sport and inside the sport as well. He, uh, he said he had a, he's had a lot to say in support of Evander Kane, saying that Kane has been talking about racism in hockey since the two of them were teammates back in Winnipeg. And I think the thing that is really special about the way Blake Wheeler is approaching it, and hopefully this means the way that Winnipeg is approaching it overall, is he's, he's not doing it in in a way that scores social media points or, uh, you know, conveys a sense of slacktivism. The, the stuff that he's posting is about doing real personal work. And when we had a 45-minute Zoom call with him the other day, he was talking about real work, starting at home, and, and, and talking with his family about that. And I think that's one of the more unique things is that, um, you know, if, if this is going to change, if hockey is going to get better, if society is going to get better, it, it's got to start in the family, in the home, in the community, with individual work. And uh, I, I've liked Blake Wheeler's leadership on particular in that. And the other thing that Wheeler did that I thought was fascinating, because I don't think any other player has even come close to it, is he put Donald Trump's word, uh, name in his mouth and talked about Trump and talked about Bernie Sanders and talked about kind of dancing away from the idea of this being a political debate and, and saying that be in the sense of like, 
you know, keep keeping people alive and and equality shouldn't be political issues but also saying hey listen man go to the polls and and vote with your conscience on these issues if you really care about them and that's a step farther than than almost any other player took this year this in these last couple weeks yeah i I agree with that that was an interesting line that he had to that he decided to walk i would say because he says you know it's not about republicans it's not about democrats it's not about politics it's about human rights and their human beings being treated unequally that's not a partisan issue and then later he says and remember you know you got to take it to the ballot box and that's (laughs) not just nationally so there's there's a connection made that if you want to make the leap that that you know he certainly has passionate views on it and it is uh, I think it is political because of, of how things are structured. But he also, I think, knew his audience and knew where he was at in terms of walking that line. That's delicate, I think. And um, in, the sca- in the scope of the NHL landscape, too, the fact that he would do that and the fact that he would even specifically talk about police brutality as well, um, I, think he's, I think he's almost unique, and he's certainly on the, on the front edge of that among NHL players. Yeah, if you had to kind of put it in a pyramid, right? Like top of the pyramid is is sort of, you know, pu- putting uh making it political, then the next stage down is actually addressing police brutality, and then the rest of it is sort of the things that you've seen in all of these other statements that have been a bit uh, more of a populist stand, I think, than than addressing some of the real issues that are being brought up in these protests. Uh one last thing on on these issues, uh you mentioned Evander Kane. Look, I think we all have a complicated relationship with Evander Kane, uh, with the things that he's done off the ice, including violence against women. And um, I don't think Winnipeg's any different insofar as having a complicated relationship with Evander Kane. Have you gotten a sense of how Jets fans or the city at large is dealing with his ascendance to being a leader on these issues? Um, and, and even to the point where, like you said, Blake Wheeler kind of pointed out, look, we should have listened to Evander back in the day when he was here, when he spoke out about this stuff. Yeah, I think you've hit it on the head in terms of the fact it's a complicated relationship. And I think Winnipeg has a complicated relationship with Evander Kane. I mean, he was cast out uh, ostensibly for for locker room issues. We know the money phone incident and there's what you just referenced as well in terms of violence. And it's it it may be tough for for some to see uh, his words on this issue without trying to what about it a whole lot. Well, what about those other things that you've done wrong? I don't know that that invalidates his perspective on racism in hockey at all. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily it, but I can see the fan base kind of struggling with it. There's the omnipresent issue of, okay, Evander King gets booed. PK Subban gets booed in Winnipeg. Is that because they're star players? Is that because there's a hint of racial um, hint of racism in that as well? And I think most Jets fans will attribute it to the quality of players. They are perhaps a little bit, I mean, there's been altercations between Shifley and Subban on the ice, and Winnipeg will, of course, have its memories of Evander Kane wanting out and whatever the backstory mm-hmm. there exactly ends up being. But it's it's a gray area, right? There are certain issues where, you know, he's certainly on the right side of it, but he's got that complicated past. And I don't think Jets fandom is a monolith. I think you're, you're going to find right. people uh, on all sides of that who some may never forgive Kane and, and some may see him as a leader right now. Oh, yeah, and I've been guilty of, as anybody, in trying to make Winnipeg fandom monolithic at times and dealing with some of these issues in the past. So that's a very good point. Um, all right, moving on to the aforementioned trivial issues. Uh, 
<laughs> the heart tr- the heart trophy i wanted to have you on specifically because we've been talking about the heart trophy on this episode we've been talking about artemi panarin we've been talking about nathan mckinnon we've been talking about leon drysaddle but the winnipeg jets have maybe one of the more complicated candidates for mvp depending on what your mileage is for goalies winning mvp and connor hellebuck so where do you stand on on his candidacy sell me on it or or tell me why we should stay away from him as a candidate for mvp well, I think the only reason to stay away from it would be, um, you know, a, a discomfort with goaltenders winning the award or perhaps uh, a, you, a personal attachment to the cases for McKinnon, Panarin, or, or even Dreisaitl. Um, but in terms of how unique goaltending is as a position within the NHL, great teams can be swamped by poor goaltending. Average teams can go all the way if goaltending gets hot. It might be a little bit unfair to consider this, but goaltenders are the most important position of the game in terms of contributing value, wins above replacement, all those sorts of things. And then you get to the season that Connor Hellebuck had where he's stopping an incredible amount of shot volume, an incredible amount of shot quality. Nobody gave up more expected goals than the Winnipeg Jets did this year. Uh, they're bottom five by shots, scoring chances, all of those things as well. And if you're outside of the organization looking in, you think, okay, well, you know, they've got those star forwards. There's a lot of things that, that you might like. The defense might be suspect, but, you know, they're right on that playoff bubble all year long. That's probably what you expect. The truth is, Connor Hellebuck was shelled this year. And if you ask folks in the organization about what went well, Answer number one is always Connor Hellebuck. I think there's a case to be made that he is the reason Winnipeg's in that ninth seed. He's the reason uh, they have a shot at the playoffs at all. Um, and, and the more that you focus on Winnipeg's own zone, I, I, I'm not sure there's a more valuable cause in the NHL in terms of on-ice performance than putting a team on your back and getting them into the playoffs. That's an incredible threshold for me based on what he had to face. And the thing that I always find interesting about his candidacy, um, because occasionally you kind of veer off into the narrative aspects of these candidates, right, is the idea that, what, like Winnipeg lost, what was it, four out of six defensemen coming into the season? Um, and, and real good one, real good one in Truba. Uh, and so you, you look at that as well and, and what he was playing behind and it's, it's, it's stunning he had the season that he had. Well, absolutely. I mean, Truba for sure. Truba and Morrissey were Winnipeg's, you know, matchup ready pair throughout last season and the year before. When Winnipeg beat Nashville in seven games, it was that pairing that handled Johansson, Forsberg, and Arvidsson, um, which is their most dangerous line. So peak Winnipeg involves Morrissey and Truba playing important minutes. Morrissey goes from Truba, who we had all that kind of chemistry with, down to Tucker Pullman, who's mostly been in the AHL or injured for the last couple of seasons. That's mm-hmm. a drop. And suddenly there's an entire matchup-ready pairing that's kind of struggling. Neil Piant comes in. Uh, that's good. But Winnipeg loses Dustin Bufflin to what's going on. Tyler right. Myers is gone. Ben Sherratt had begun to take on a bigger role as things had gone as well. And so credit to the Jets and their attitude and um, the amount of pain and shot blocks and all those things that the Jets defensemen like Lucas Spiza and Anthony Botetto and some of the newer faces typically further down the death chart but pushed into some pretty heavy duty in Winnipeg. Credit to them, that doesn't change the amount of work that Connor Hellebuck had. The amount of zone time in Winnipeg's end, uh, whether that's on the PK, whether that's even strength, the amount of shots 
from right between those dots in the center slot, missed coverage. These things happen. Uh, and Connor Hellebuck's ability, he led the NHL by a country mile in goals saved above expectation yeah. based on shot quality. Um, and so credit to the team. I mean, the attitude is good inside the room. Things are right, but uh, that doesn't change the amount of pucks he had to stop. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, is there another award that you've got your eye on that you're, you're sort of interested in and in how it's going to all play out? Uh, the the two, and I'm torn. Well, I'll defer to you on which one of these is more compelling. But uh, <laughs> for me, Roman Yossi's quest for the Norris, because I, yeah. I know some folks don't think of him as a premier defender, but his impact was massive. Um, and then also the Selkie, where you know I think there's an argument for less heralded players like an Anthony Sorelli to, to be near the top of the Selkie voting. But then you've got old stalwarts like Couturier and, uh, and Bergeron as well. Mark Stone's always you know close in, in, in that group as well. And I think that's one in both cases where a person's interpretation of, of what the award is supposed to be often dictates how people vote. Yeah. Unless your interpretation is that it just should, it's supposed to be Patrice Bergeron's every year, then, then you get into kind of a, a gray area on what that interpretation actually looks like. I agree. I think, I think both, I think all, I think out of, outside of the Vezina, um, every award is up for grabs. Uh, the Jack Adams to me is really fascinating in the sense that, I mean, to me, I think Vigneault with the work he did in Philadelphia should maybe be a little bit head and shoulders above, but you can make the argument for a lot of other guys too for that award as well. Um, it's a it's a fascinating ballot uh, up and down outside of the Vesna, which I don't imagine the GMs are going to screw up. Uh, but you're right on the Selkie. Like I think Sorelli's got the numbers. I think there's going to be one of those. Couturier is now being I think framed in that Drew Doughty sense of here's the guy we preordained to win it this year, but maybe he's not the best defensive guy, but maybe we should give it to him anyway. <laughs> you know, like when Dowdy <laughs> won the Norris. Um, so so we'll, achievement award. Like, yeah, and that's sometimes how these things work out, man, uh, especially on the defensive end um, where everybody, like you said, has their own different interpretation. Uh, last thing, you know, the, the Winnipeg-Calgary matchup, we talked to Cam Talbot on the podcast recently about what a bummer it's going to be to have this playoff series between these two teams played in a vacuum it's it's hard to imagine what this playoff series looks like without the sea of red without the whiteout um how do you see this playing out like what do you what do you what do you think about winnipeg's chances against this flames team well i think it's pretty much right down the middle in terms of uh you know i'd say this is going to be a compelling one a coin flip of sorts the easy thing to do would be to look at Connor Hellebuck's season and look at, you know, Cam Talbot's season, David Riddick's season and say, okay, Winnipeg's got the distinct advantage in net. And I think that's true. But in a small sample, like five games, I mean, the amount of bounces that can completely change the course of a series, no matter how well a goaltender is playing, I, that as much as goaltending is in Winnipeg's favor and goaltending can dictate series, anything can happen. And um, that one... Uh, is it, so compelling to me. If there's even one bad giveaway behind the net, one odd bounce, it, it'll change the goaltending narrative in an awful hurry. Uh, the other thing that I'm, I'm really curious about, and this is something to, to really pay attention to about Winnipeg, the addition of Dylan DeMello just before the trade deadline, mm-hmm. I think just a moment ago I was talking about Josh Morrissey needing to go from Jacob Truba to Tucker Pullman and figuring out new chemistry with somebody who is you know not as strong of an NHL player. Morrissey was able to play with Dylan DeMello in his last few games that coincided with Winnipeg's winning streak to run into the pause, and it coincided with full health on the Jets as well. As soon as you give Morrissey and DeMello, and then Neil Pionk and Dmitry Kulikov was the other pairing playing top four minutes, 
DeMello's appearance almost gives Winnipeg an entire new pairing and gives Morrissey a boost he hasn't had all season long as well. So Winnipeg's defense suddenly, for the first time, looks like it could handle top four matchups, which is good because Calgary's top six is obviously very powerful. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see. And like you said, I mean, it, you know, there's going to be sort of a, a rethinking of a lot of this stuff based on what happened at the trade di- deadline because we've only seen 10 games of Dylan DeMello in Winnipeg. Like, we've only seen, like, what, like 10 games of Ilya Kovalchuk with the Capitals. Like, it's it's incredible to try to wrap your brain around what these teams will actually look like. Not only the mysteries of what shape the guys are in coming back, but also the mysteries of how these pieces fit because we don't even know. We didn't even get a good run with them in some of these cases. It's going to be great, um, assuming everybody can stay healthy. <laughs> Like, I mean, I guess lastly, yeah, I mean, like, lastly, how do you feel about the uh, the, sort of the moral implications of return to play during a global pandemic? Oh, boy. Um, You know, the the players I've talked to, I'm basically taking my my thought process from them is that it seems to be at some point you've got to trust the medical people. And as long as that's happening and as long as it seems as though the NHL is being really quite thorough based on the documentation and everything uh, on, on the protocol that these guys are going to be following, um, you know, power to them. I, I do have concern. I'm going to be one of the last guys back in restaurants. I promise you that, Greg. But uh, <laughs> the, the NHL seems to be doing the best it can, it can and that's all we can hold for. All right, man. Let, let everybody know where they can find your stuff. Well, of course, yeah. I'm Murad Atesh, and it's at theathletic.com. Winnipeg Jets, anything to do with that at The Athletic. And on Twitter, it's a WPG Murat, which is W-P-G-M-U-R-A-T. Good stuff, Murat. Thank you so much for your time, man. We appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Well, I'm smarter. I'm hoping that you're smarter now, too, that we had three really brilliant guests on the podcast this week to talk about a great many things. Award ballots are out. I'm going to be putting together my votes on Friday. Uh, they got to be sent in, I think, by Monday. I should probably figure out that for sure <laughs> so my votes count. <laughs> the Masterton uh, Trophy voting is also ongoing. Uh, that is the award that I've affectionately titled the Lifetime Original Movie Award, where it usually goes to the most tragic story for a player in a given season. Um, but i got to tell you, like, it is an important award because it does put the spotlight on guys that struggle through things to keep playing this game and inspire others. And uh, to me, top of the ballot this year is Bobby Ryan. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody who in life beyond this season has gone through as much as Bobby Ryan has gone through, thrived, played through it, and uh, and has dealt with some demons this year in trying to get some help for substance abuse. And then comes back and has one one of the the, the quintessential moments of the season, um, where he gets that ovation after the the hat trick. Um, he's top of my ballot, and uh, and wouldn't be surprised if he's not top of the ballot for other people. As far as the rest of the ballot, we shall see. It's the joy of doing this is I've got some time to mull it over, break down the numbers, and listen to people that are exponentially smarter than me <laughs> put their views out there. Which is why we decided to have these three guests on this week. Anyways, thanks for listening to ESPN on Ice. No categories this week. We'll do them next week when Emily returns from vacation. Um, if you want to check out our work on ESPN.com, I, I hope that you do. Uh, we have a very fun countdown this uh, this week, ranking the most memorably weird hockey playoff overtime goals in honor of the 10th anniversary. Yep, you're that old, of Patrick Kane. Uh, helping the Chicago Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup with an overtime goal against the Philadelphia Flyers. I still remember being in the bowels of the arena in Philadelphia 
and the first things I heard were screaming behind me. Uh, and I said, oh, my goodness, it must be employees of the Chicago Blackhawks making that noise. No, it was television people from Chicago making that noise. I'll never forget that. Um, but it's a fun countdown that ropes in a bunch of stuff from other hockey leagues as well. Anyways, that's the podcast. Check out the site. Thanks for listening. Rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, and uh, thanks again for listening during uh, quarantine and all that stuff. Bye. Bet ESPN on Ice with Wyszynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.